All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Story Symbol Spirit, a podcast about how to make sense of scripture. My name is Jackie Mitchell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, John McCambridge. What's John, up, how's it going? Good, except I you mean, stole my job. So now I know. I guess did you're that feel really weird now? that I did the intro? It was pretty good. Did I sound like you? No. Less cool? More cool? Well, obviously less cool, but, but, but <laughs> so, you know, that's a high bar. So you sound, you sounded pretty cool. Okay, well, good. Well, there's a reason. Okay, now, uh, why are you do? Why are you usurping this? Yeah, I, I promise you can you can go back next week to to doing your intro. But I did the intro today only because we've got a special episode here today. Okay, it's Ooh, episode thirty seven, I believe. Wow, I think I'm I'm losing count. Wow. But at this point, we've covered a really big chunk of Genesis. I mean, almost half the book, and mm-hmm. it's really one of the longer books of the Bible. So we're going to take an episode today to talk about what we've covered so far. Mm-hmm what themes and symbols we've seen pop up over the course of our reading and then cover some of the questions that might have arisen that we haven't touched on specifically yet. So I would encourage everyone to think of this episode as like a mile marker. So we've, you know, we've covered maybe like 20, what, 21, 22? I think 22 chapters I think it's 22 chapters, yeah. So we'd like to place these episodes like in every once in a while to cover kind of big chunks of scripture mm-hmm. and kind of talk about where we are so that if you've missed a couple episodes although i don't know who would yeah everybody has listened to every episode yeah. right but if, if if you're just joining us or if you missed a couple episodes it's nice to just kind of look at this mile marker yeah. and see like kind of where we're at so but first as always if you're enjoying this podcast leave us a review on whatever platform you listen on and share this with a friend okay so all right i mean good job we're going to, I know, isn't this crazy? Yeah. I'm talking so much. I know. You're gonna be tired. Your voice is going to be tired. <laughs> I know, it will be. Uh, we'll get into some questions, John, and I'll, I'll have you answer those. But I think it's important for us to recap the three main aspects of our study. Mm-hmm. Do you know what those are? Um, the story. Okay, that's good. Uh, symbol. Right. And it's okay. I'm just going to take a shot in the dark here. Spirit. John, three for three. Wow. It's Pretty a good. Test taker. It's because you listen to this. Yeah, story, symbol, spirit. So that's like our three-part hermeneutic, right? Right, yeah. yeah. So so obviously story is the most like straightforward mm-hmm. if you if you think about the Bible, right? So uh, we've got a lot of chapters that we've covered. So I'd like to take a couple minutes and kind of do like a, a big overview kind of recap of the story so far. Great, great. And then we'll get into symbol and spirit. Yeah, perfect. So we started in Genesis 1, where we opened to a world created for human flourishing and intimacy with God. And humans are kind of created a a bit differently than the rest of creation, right? Mm -hmm. They're made in the image of God and they're given the breath of life. The humans are placed in a garden and they're crowned as the stewards of creation. Mm -hmm. So they're given the command to rule over the land, the animals, and to increase in number. Um, And then there's this business with a couple of trees. We're going to cover a question about that later because I think um, it'll be interesting. But kind of will you give us a brief overview of the two trees that are specifically mentioned in the garden? Yeah. So there's the tree of life. And there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. And so the, well, and actually the garden is full of trees. Yeah. Right. Right. Which have fruit on them. Right. Which is part of the human vocation of, of taking God's good world and stewarding it. Yeah. But then these two specific trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are special in terms of the purpose of humans for the world. Mm-hmm. Right. So the tree of life is important because basically, you know, life is contingent on God. Right. Mm-hmm. So the access to the tree of life is specifically what it means to be in relationship with God. Mm. So to be created by God is to have life and, and there is no life outside of God. So uh, actually like th- that tree is important for us today because we, I think that we do kind of tend to think of life as like a right. Yeah. A given, but life is God. Mm. 
God is existence, right? We exist within the the world that God has created, which means that we're completely contingent upon him. So the to the extent that we have life, it is a gift from God. Mm-hmm. And so in the garden, we have access, un, unmediated access to this tree of life, which means that death is not a reality, mm-hmm. right? So uh, the, the eternal life, if you will, is, uh, you know, everlasting life is... Uh, uh, the the gift of God to humanity, and as long as we have access to that, then death is not a reality, right? So, so that's that's the tree of life. Then the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is basically the tree of wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. Because human beings are going to, like you said, steward the world, and they're going to take it from glory to further glory. Yeah. So God's created, it's beautiful, it's glorious because it's in his, it, it is to some degree, it has his fingerprints on it, mm-hmm. right? So what's special about humans is that we are called images of God, which specifically means that we are supposed to take his good world and in our stewardship and lordship of it, in his name, in mm-hmm. his character, um, uh, in his wisdom, we're going to be able to take that world and take it from from good to great, mm-hmm. from from good to very good is what the the, the scriptures yeah. say from glory to further glory. And so the way that that's going to happen. So remember like life itself is simply connection to the God who created you mm-hmm. flourishing, which is taking the world from goodness to further goodness. It is going to happen to the extent that we rule and reign on his behalf and in his name and in his character. Right. Mm-hmm. So to know good and evil is to discern and to judge. It is to understand what's right and what's wrong, uh, to understand how our actions are either going to take something, you know, if you look at like a, a stock, like up and to the right mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or, or down to, for, to goodness or, or to, to evil, right? Yeah. And so we have to know that. Now, uh, what I think the promise in the garden of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that we're actually given access to that tree over time. Yeah. So humans are dynamic creatures. We change, we grow, we, we, we bloom, we blossom. And so as we follow God, as we have relation with him, as we see his character, we come to know him. And in knowing him, we come to know good and evil. Yeah, we talked about this is how wisdom is received today. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not overnight. It's, you know. It's learned. It's learned through a, a fellowship and a walk with God. So with access to the tree of life, and intimacy with God in the garden, the humans are going to, you know, um, uh, progressively have access to the wisdom of God, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so it's not that God's withholding that tree. The the prohibition on eating from that tree in this moment is that humans are not to just take good and evil for themselves. Sure, yeah. They're not to see the world through their own eyes. Yeah. We don't even live by ourselves, right? We live... Uh, at the pleasure of God. So how could we rule the world at the pleasure of ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so to, w- when the humans take from the tree, the reason we call this rebellion is be- not just because they're breaking the the prohibition that God gave them, but because basically what they're saying is that we don't want to see through your eyes. Yeah, We're going to see through our eyes and we're going to judge the, the world accordingly. And we're going to put our transformative powers that we have as the images of God, we're going to put those powers that are in our hands on the world and we're going to change it into our own likeness. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to wait for this knowledge to, to come to us. And, and we're not going to rule with the wisdom of God. Yeah, We're going to do it for ourselves. And that's, yeah. that's the story of them taking the fruit. Yeah. 
So th- th- that would kind of be my initial summation of, of the two trees. Yeah, that's good. So, I mean, really, in a way, it seems like the only negative imperative given to the humans is that they can't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. That's all God says, right? right? But like you said, I mean, obedience to that command doesn't last long. So the humans are cast out of the garden. They're sent east of the garden. Yeah. And their choice brings brokenness, sin, death, all of that stuff into the world. But God meets them with grace and love and promises that though they have sinned and they've separated themselves from God, he's going to send someone, a seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, even though Adam and Eve are cast out, they have that that tiny glow of hope, right? Yeah. And this is the way that God meets them in their rebellion. Yeah. Right. So when you read the story, what you come to see is that in that rebellion, in that action, everything is now shattered. Yeah. And so if you think about an artist or someone who creates something that he or she loves, if you were to come into the room and then take it and shatter that on the ground, if it's yeah. like a, you know, whatever, some, some kind of uh, statue or something, how would, how would the creator of that meet you? Probably with anger. With wrath and anger, yeah. right? So it's important to understand because that's typically the way that we view the God of the mm-hmm. Old Testament, but that's not exactly what happens here. Right. Right. He, he, he comes to them and meets them. He looks for them. He finds them. And one of his initial responses to this problem is to, to promise restoration yeah. and redemption. Yeah. yeah. It's grace. Absolutely, it's grace. And to be fair, it wouldn't be wrong of him to be angry. It makes sense. Right. And he still chooses grace, right. which is amazing. So even though Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, um, they still continue to adhere to the directive to be fruitful and multiply, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, they're east of the garden, um, but they have a couple sons, Cain and Abel. Right. So... If we were Adam and Eve at that point, we might be thinking, okay, one of these two must be the seed that yeah. God was talking about, right? It's got to be one of my sons, right? Yeah. So they, I, they are the seed Yeah, of the they woman, are the seed right? of the woman, right? But as we know, instead of bringing restoration, Cain brings further sin and death upon the world by killing his brother out of jealousy. Mm. So now he, you know, because he's tainted with sin mm. or his brother, because his brother is dead, can possibly be the redeemer. And Cain is cast out even further east of Eden. Mm where he becomes basically a wanderer and eventually builds a city. Mm-hmm. Then from there, we got to our very first genealogy, which I know everyone loved <laughs> from Adam onward until Noah. And it seems like since the fall, instead of humanity kind of getting better from that point of fall, kind of feels like they got worse, right? Like we yeah. see that business with Lamech and, mm-hmm. and just like a pattern of habitual sin and self-idolization. Uh, and by the time Noah appears on the scene, it's written that he is one of the only ones who's found favor in the Lord's eyes, right? Yeah. I mean, basically no one is righteous. So God mm. wipes out humanity in a flood, which we talked about this a little bit, but we can touch on it again. I mean, to us, that seems harsh sometimes, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like what you said before. We have to look at it like this. If someone came into your home, if you were just sitting at home and someone came in and started destroying your belongings, mm-hmm. or how, how long would you let them stay there? Right? Would you let them make themselves at home? Mm-hmm. And would you sit idly by, or would you stop them from destroying the thing that you created, the thing that you love? And would that be wrong of you to stop them from continuing? So we talked about even in the same way, the flood is a story of grace because in a way God is stopping humanity from bringing like further destruction mm-hmm. upon themselves and to those around them. Yeah, like uh, one of the reasons it's really important to, to understand this story aspect is because you can, from the story, only within the narrative structure can you see the progression. Yeah. Right. So when when they eat the apple, death comes into the world. Death mm-hmm. becomes a reality, right? Well, the next story is Cain and Abel, where that yeah. death 
is is taken from one image of God to another, mm-hmm. right? Where it's not just that death is a reality, it's that I'm now a bringer of death. Yeah. When Cain murders his brother, and God meets that with grace, by right. the way, marks him, right. protects him. And then what you see with the Lamex story that you talked about is like, yeah, this multiplication of 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 vengeance and death mm-hmm. and violence. Mm-hmm. And remember that the blood of the innocent cries out from the ground. That's what it says when when Abel when is Abel killed. is killed, yeah. And so you have generations of this, and you get to Genesis six twelve, and it says, "And God saw all that He had created, and behold, mm. it was ruined." Yeah. So uh, the world, because of human sin and because of the death that it brings about, is ruined within several generations. And so the, the flood is an act of judgment, yeah. absolutely. Uh, righteous judgment. Yes. And yet the grace that is within that judgment is because things have to be set back to rights, mm. right? Because to allow that to continue forever would not be kind yeah. of God, right? And so there's grace in the judgment, but then there's also grace because he doesn't destroy all of humanity and start over with some other project. Yeah, He saves Noah mm-hmm. and he cleanses the world of the blood that cries out from the ground and of the evil that causes that blood to spill. And then he, you know, in a foreshadowing, he resurrects Noah and his family yeah, out from of, the flood. Uh, from the flood. Yeah. To begin anew. And so Noah's basically a new Adam. Absolutely. Right? I mean, when they land and the floodwaters subside, one of the first things God says to them is the same directive given to humans in the garden, mm-hmm. right? be fruitful and multiply. There you go. So, I mean, if there was any kind of ambiguity, it seems like Noah is the new Adam. He's right. the new seed to us. Again, when you're reading the story, you're like, okay, this is the guy this time. This mm-hmm. is this is the guy who's going to make everything right. But then right off the bat, we kind of get some, some weird stuff um, happening. Well, first of all, God also says that blood spilled requires a reckoning. Mm. So he says that to Noah. And then he establishes a covenant with Noah mm-hmm. that I want to talk about later. Uh, but the covenant is this, that because mankind is evil, and we we pointed out this emphasis on because, he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. Mm-hmm. Will you talk about why that word because is important? Yeah, so um, the reason the flood came about, the judgment that, that mm-hmm. cleansed the world of everybody except Noah and his family is because evil was on the hearts of humans, right? Yeah. The evil in our hearts brings about death in this world. The death in this world mars and destroys the goodness that God has created, mm-hmm. right? That's that's pretty simple. And that's the reason for the judgment. And yet uh, what he says to Noah is that because of that reason, because you're like this, I'm never going to do this again. Yeah. Which is strange until you kind of start to contextualize it in the rest of the narrative, which is basically, uh, you know, humanity's compromised. Yeah. There is sin, and so there is violence. There is spilled innocent blood. There is death. And so things are not as they're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And yet God, in his love that created human beings, uh, he has decided to to stick with them, right? That they are going to be his images, even though they're compromised. Yeah. And so... The, one of the reasons that's important for the rest of the story is because when you see these 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 stories that happen after this with the people of God, and then kind of when you look around the world today, uh, one of the things that you're going to see is that God moves even through evil. Yeah, He does not will it. He does not want it. Mm-hmm. And yet it's a reality because he's chosen us mm-hmm. and we're evil mm-hmm. at times or all the time. Depends, yeah. right? Yeah. And so how is God going to redeem the world 
and bring beauty out of the world if his images who are in charge of the world have this kind of evil in their hearts. Well, mm -hmm. it means that he's going to have to move through evil. Yeah. Compromise. Yeah. Right? So when you see the people of God acting foolishly, acting sinfully, that's not because God wants them to do that. Yeah. It's because that's how we are. That's why he made this covenant with Noah. And his promise is that instead of bringing that judgment upon mm. the world again in that way, that he's actually going to move through the compromised images and pull order, beauty, and goodness out of the ashes yeah. of the evil that sometimes comes from us, yeah. comes upon us, right? And so the, the covenant with Noah, people oftentimes think that it's just basically God saying he's not going to flood the world. That's not what it means. Um, it means that he is going to work within us in our compromised state mm -hmm. because he loves us and because that's what he wants. Yeah. Right. So it's very important as the foundational covenant. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, so God says that. And to just note, he does say, even though you guys are sinful, and yet I feel like we're still sometimes surprised when Noah and his sons kind of, it, it immediately starts to drop off. We get that business yeah. with Noah's son, Ham, where it seems like he's trying to take his father's authority for himself. So right. even after the flood, we see, you know, we see that sin still lingers in the world. So after that story, there's another genealogy. And after that genealogy, we kind of land at the Tower of Babel, which mm. is another depiction of the wayward hearts of mankind. Instead of working together for the kingdom of God, the people in the city are aiming to make a name for themselves, they say. Mm -hmm. So that motivation spurs them on to create a tower to reach the heavens. So God scatters them, which we find really interesting and confuses their languages. Mm -hmm. So they can't work together for evil as easily. Mm -hmm. And then finally, Abram shows up on the scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been a while. We've talked about him for a good, like, what, maybe 10 chapters now? Yeah, but we've yeah. been with him for a while. So at the time when we met him, he was living in Haran and we can assume his father is not a worshiper of Yahweh. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So God calls Abram to leave Haran and basically his father, everything he knows and go to a place that God will show him, which we know is the promised land. The land of Canaan. Yeah. yeah. And he obeys, right? So he sets off with his wife, Sarai and his nephew, Lot. Um, so they travel out and pretty quickly there's beef with Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen kind of seems like everybody's growing too big for their, their one community. So Abraham and Lot separate and Lot goes eastward towards Sodom, which mm -hmm. we come to find out is a pretty wicked place and right. we'll visit again. And then in the next chapter, Abram actually has to rescue Lot from a war that Sodom is caught up in. And after he defeats Keterleomer and he brings Lot back, Abraham's met by somewhat of a mysterious character named Melchizedek, yeah. who the writer of Genesis calls a priest of God most high. We said that was interesting because he's not with Abram. We don't know right. where he came from. He kind of pops up. He blesses Abram. Mm. Abram ties to him mm -hmm. and he disappears, right. which we thought was really interesting. And then God makes the first of a couple covenants with Abraham after that. Mm -hmm. The first one is partially while Abram is asleep. So God promises that Abram will have a son and he says that his descendants will be like the stars in the sky. What does that mean? Yeah, so uh, the the covenant with, with Abram is that he's going to be the father of many. Mm -hmm. He's going to make a nation out of him. And he's going to bless the nation. And he's going to bless those who bless them, curse those who curse them. And then through that nation, through the descendants of Abraham, the whole world is going to be blessed, mm. right? So... One of the parts of the 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 promise to Abram is descendants, yeah. right? 
And we talked about this a little bit. He says, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. And we said that that meant both in terms of quantity and quality. Yeah. Right? Which is kind of confusing. But um, when when you look up at the sky in the Middle East, in the desert, when it's clear, it does not look like the sky in Columbus, Ohio, mm-hmm. even on a clear night with it, with light pollution, right? It There's too many stars to count. Yeah. So in terms of quantity, what he's saying is that you you know your descendants are going to be that many, yeah. right? Like you, uncountable. Other times he uses the language the grains of sand, mm-hmm. right? The specks of dirt on the earth, too many to count. So you're going to be big. You know your your offspring is going to be many. And then he also like in terms of quality, uh, the the stars are are looked at as being angels. Mm. angelic beings, spiritual beings, right? And uh, it's not because they didn't understand what a, what a star was, mm. right? Now, they didn't have the material understanding that we, that we think that we do, mm. that they're burning balls of gas and, you know, nuclear fusion or whatever. But that wasn't really the point, right? The point was that the spiritual realm, these beings can embody things. Yeah. And so God has a host, and we'll talk about this when we get to the spirit aspect. But but you know, the 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 divine counsel of God, these spiritual beings that He has created to to walk with Him as He rules the world, His counsel, um, they're thought of as as being the stars that they embody these bright lights in the sky. And so, what is the destiny of the descendants of Abraham? Mm. It's to become like that, to become the divine council members who who rule with God, who are glorified like those stars, right? Yeah. And we'll, we'll we'll probably get into this more, but you start to kind of see this where, um, like when Jesus transfigures on the mount, mm, he's shiny, he's bright and shiny. Say. Yeah. Right. Well, that's not just like some like artistic, yeah, you know, rendering of that. That's because that's what these glorified beings look like. Yeah. And so the the destiny of the descendants of Abraham is to be as many as the stars in the sky and to be like them in the sense that they will somehow become, you know, come into some form of divinity. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So God promises that to Abram. And then he completes this kind of ritual sign of the covenant, this passing through between mm. uh kind of a gruesome scene like these these animals that are cut in half. Yeah. But he does all this while Abram's in a death sleep. Mm-hmm. And because Abram was asleep, we can assume that this covenant is not conditional on Abram's part, right? Like this right. is God saying, this is on me. Right. And I'll fulfill the promise. So he's unilaterally promising this to Abram. Yeah. So so typically they would walk by it between yeah. the animals facing each other. What if 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 I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, this agreement, then what happens to these animals will happen to me. Mm. But instead, he puts Abram in a death sleep, uh, a deep sleep, yeah. and then he walks through himself. And the reason that it's a, a fire pot and a, a torch, mm. a smoking fire pot and a torch is because the smoke represents the spirit that hovered over the waters. Yeah. And the fire represents the light, which is the first thing that God says in the creation story, let there be light. Yeah. So in a sense, this is a new creation story because he is in this moment, in this covenant ritual creating the people of God who mm. will redeem the world. Sure. Right? So it's yeah. a new creation story that, yeah. that has a, begins with this covenant. Mm-hmm. So Abram's wife, Sarai, she seems a little bit less convinced, I think, than this, that this promise will come true. 
So they don't have any kids at this point and they're pretty old. I think they're in their nineties right. or they're almost a hundred. Right? right. And Sarai doesn't think she'll ever be able to bear child. So she asks Abram to sleep with her servant, Hagar, so that she might have a child kind of through surrogacy. Abram does this though. We talked about, he shouldn't have done that. He should have said no. And Hagar looks on Sarai with contempt, right? Mm -hmm. So, so they have a child or she's pregnant and she's with child and she starts to look on her, her master with contempt. Mm -hmm. And so she runs away and the Lord meets her and tells her to return back. Mm -hmm. And then God reaffirms his covenant with Abram and he changes his name to Abraham and Sarai's name becomes Sarah. And he also establishes a symbol of this covenant with Abraham through circumcision. And he promises that Sarah specifically will have a son of her own, mm -hmm. right? So he's saying, I, I know you, you, you had a child through Hagar. You know, you've got Ishmael, but I'm telling you, you have a son who's going to be the heir mm -hmm. and that that son will come through Sarah. And then the Lord actually visits Abram and Sarah at the Oaks of Mamre, right? It says that the Lord passed by, mm -hmm. the Lord visited Abram. And he even calls Sarah out a little bit for laughing at the promise. Mm -hmm. And then she lies about it. And he's like, no, you did laugh. Mm -hmm. I know you did. And while God's there, he brings Abraham into his divine counsel in a weird sense. He discusses the destruction the destruction of Sodom with Abraham. Then we see an example of just how wicked the city really is, right? So mm -hmm. Abraham talks to God about the destruction of Sodom in a sense that's almost hypothetical, right? He kind of poses the question like, yeah. well, what if there's 50 good people in the city? Right. It, there doesn't seem to be, yeah, right? right? So we see this, this evil city that God is just in destroying. Yeah, so um, uh, God tells Abraham that he's going to be the vessel through which, you know, through righteousness and judgment that God's redemption is going to mm -hmm. come to the world, right? That's the promise that Abraham, that's why that's how the nations are going to be blessed. So he invites Abraham to participate in this righteousness and this judgment. Um, we said that Abraham's descendants are going to become like the stars in the sky, the stars in the sky from, from a theological perspective, were the embodiments of the divine council, yeah. these members who are in the courtroom of God, helping God make decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in this moment, God invites him to do both of those things, to come into the divine council yeah. and to practice righteousness and justice. And what Abraham starts asking God is like, well, what if there's righteous in there too? Yeah. Are you going to destroy them? And he goes on this long winded kind of negotiation with God. Um, and the answer to that question seems to be no. Yeah. If God will not judge the righteous with, with the, the wicked. unrighteous, yeah. And so um, th this is this is a, actually an example of Abraham doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing, mm. which is fighting for righteousness and justice. Yeah. Right. Which is really just clarifying what God is is intending to do. Yeah, for sure. But then you know, then then you they go into Sodom. Uh, you know, the angels go into Sodom. Yeah. And they're with Lot and the, the men from all parts of the city. Yeah, right. The they're representing city. basically the whole city. Yeah, they come in and, and want to rape the angels. And, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, it's evil. Yeah. And so the judgment of God comes upon them. Yeah. Justly. Yeah. Right. Which as Christians, it's like, well, because God is just. Yeah. And as Abraham just established, if they were righteous, mm. that wouldn't happen. Mm, yeah. And if they repent, that wouldn't happen. And if they call out to God and call upon the name of God, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. But as, if if that wickedness is who they have become, then when the judgment on the day of the Lord comes, the sin that is in the flesh is condemned in the flesh. Yeah. Right. And mm. so 
that's what we see when it turns to salt. Yeah. And so Lot and his family are rescued once again from that. It seems like Lot just cannot kind of stay separated from Sodom in that way. So the second time that he's been rescued in Sodom. Um, But there is one kind of interesting point and that's that Lot's wife turns around and looks back, even though the angel of the Lord told her not to. Right. right? And because of that, she gets turned into a pillar of salt. Right. And again, like it's not because she, she broke a rule or like did something wrong, took a misstep. It's because she doesn't want to leave Sodom. Yeah, I mean, in a way, the Lord gave her over, right? So one of the questions of the deliverance of God is, do you want it? Yeah. Mm. Right? Because repentance is to turn away from one thing and to turn towards God. So, you know, we we, we always want our cake and we want to eat it too. Yeah. Right? We want to mm-hmm. have it in front of us and see it, how beautiful it is. It's his happy birthday and we want to admire it, but we also want to eat it. Yeah. And we if if we could be magic, we would have both of those things simultaneously. Yeah. That this beautiful cake stays like this, but I also get to eat it. That's what that's what that saying means. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, we don't want to get swept up in the judgment, but the things that are being judged back there kind of like nice. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe it wasn't so bad. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're addicted to it. Yeah. Maybe we we feel like we need it. Do you ever pray for something like, God, I really need you know, your help in this situation, I need discernment in this situation. And it feels like the discernment is stop doing that thing you're doing that right. you know is wrong. And it's like, oh, well. Well, maybe you uh, could do, maybe you could, maybe work you could just divinely work around that, please. Yeah. So, so her turning back yeah. is, is, you know, the judgment that comes upon her yeah. is because if you want Sodom, then you can have it. Yeah. And look she, where it got but you. But you got to know what it is. Yeah. And, and, mm. and so, um, I think I think that that is a, a very you know that's that's a paradigm story. Yeah. Right. That that gets mentioned again in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. It's very relevant to our mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, finally, just recently, we've talked about the birth of Isaac. I mean, he's finally here. Hagar and Ishmael are sent away, but they do receive blessing through the covenant. Right. right? So Ishmael is not the covenant carrier, but he does receive blessing right. through. Um, Isaac. And like we talked about last time, Abram's then called to sacrifice his son mm-hmm. and he obeys believing in faith that God would raise him from the dead. But God sends a substitute and that points us all the way to the event of the cross, which is what we talked about last time. Correct? Correct. Yeah. And so that's where we're at so far. I mean, it definitely, once you recap something like that, it feels like a lot has happened. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a sure. really fast moving book. I mean, we, we kind of joke about the pace that we're going at, yeah. but we're actually going fast. I mean, listen, like right? if if we read Genesis in like three chunks like that, there was so much in there that yeah. we had to cover and stuff that I even left out in this recap and be impossible almost to go faster right. the way we're doing it. Right. Like if, you, if you've if you ever um, gone to a church where it's called expositional preaching, where mm-hmm. they go line by line through yeah. the Bible, which is kind of what we're doing right now. But, the, you know, they would spend, you know, the, they'll spend a year in Matthew. Yeah. I went to a church like that right? in college. Yeah. And I think we're probably going to spend a year in Genesis. Yeah. And that's just the nature of what it means to look at this stuff at, at this type of of level. Because it's so rich. Because it's so rich. Yeah. And you have to understand that we also, in this activity that you and I are doing with uh, with our listeners, we're still actually going fast. We're still there's so much more choosing I mean, to admit stuff. Yeah. So much more. Yeah. I mean you could you could spend your whole life and never leave, you know, Genesis one through twelve. Yeah, Augustine says that about the scriptures. He said, mm-hmm. if I had all the resources in the whole world and I studied from boyhood to old age, I would never scratch the depth of the surface yeah. of scriptures. 
And that's because it's the word of God. Yeah. yeah. God is, is cool. incomprehensibly complex. Yeah. So he has revealed himself to us both in a way that's that we can understand yeah. and see and, and, and that can become part of our reality, but also there's depths to that revelation that oh, we'll yeah. never get to the bottom of. Which is grace because if he's given us a book to live by, yeah. it's good that we can never like get tired of it or yeah. know everything about it, right? For sure. Okay, so we're on to the second aspect of the podcast and that's symbolism. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna have you talk about some of the main symbols we've seen so far in the story. We touched on them a little bit, mm-hmm. but I'm gonna have you summarize some of these. Will you start with trees? We already talked about two specific trees, but we see the Oaks of Mamre. Mm-hmm. We've seen lots of trees. We're going to see trees moving forward. Yeah. I mean, talk a little bit about why that is. Yeah. So the symbolic aspect of the hermeneutic is like the idea that like we really, really, really have to start here. God is the creator of the world. Yeah. Okay. So when you hear a song from Mozart and you know classical music, you can tell from its character that it's Mozart. Yeah. And then if you hear a Beethoven song, you're not going to confuse that with Mozart. Yeah, that's Because true. the creator of those works of art have their fingerprints on them in mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. And if you understand it, then you can see that. Mm-hmm. The same is true of pretty much any musician. The same is true of paintings, brush strokes, you know, styles, things that people do in, in the world of creation and art. Um, uh, there, there are writers who, when you read their novels... If you read them a lot, you know it's them. So I yeah. love I love Cormac McCarthy, mm. the novelist, and I know what his writing sounds like. Mm. Right, like I've read all of his books, so I I can I can understand his prose, and you know because it's it's from him, and so it bears his fingerprint. Mm-hmm. So the symbolic aspect of what we're talking about really begins with the fact that God created the world, and so every single thing in this world has the fingerprints of God on it. Mm-hmm. Right, not just us images, although we do in a unique way, everything does, and so. It, it starts to make sense when it's when you start to see that like, you know, God is compared to trees sometimes, mm-hmm. and God is analogized to mountains mm-hmm. and rocks and water, and that's not just the authors being creative. It's like, well, God created the water, God created that mountain, mm-hmm. God created that tree, God created that sky and those stars, and so they bear his fingerprints, right? They, they yeah. reveal something about him. So you take an example like a tree and the tree starts in the earth and goes up into the heavens. And then it gets up into the heavens and it kind of explodes outward into, you know, what you and I call branches and leaves. And if you stand underneath that tall tree that's in the sky, that's connected to the earth, you're protected. Mm-hmm. So then you think about what is God like? Well, in our ways of describing him as humans, mm. you know, he's up there, but he's also down here. Yeah. And if you stand under him, you have this kind of protection, right? Not just from the elements, but, but you know, you have his blessing. Mm. And so uh, God is like a tree. Heaven is, is full of trees. Well, how do we know that? Well, because the Garden of Eden was full of trees. Mm. And then when God floods the world, Noah is saved by going into an ark, which is made of wood, which is made of trees. Mm-hmm. And then when Abraham comes to know God and comes to uh, partake in the new covenant with God and starts to move forward the mission of God, he does so under the oaks of Mamre. Mm-hmm. And that's not coincidental. Right when you get all the way to Revelation 22, and we're in the New Jerusalem, the the River of Life, 
which we're not even going to talk about water here, but you could do all of this with water as well, flows in between the two trees. Yeah. And those trees are going to heal and protect the nations, mm-hmm. right? Because if you stand under the tree, uh, that is God, you're protected from all that might come uh, 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 upon you, right? Yeah. And so God is like a tree, right? God is, uh, uh, he is like the things that he created because he created them, yeah. right? So n- not all of them in the same way, but his fingerprints are on them. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about the ocean. The mm-hmm. ocean kind of represents chaos mm-hmm. and darkness and evil because if you go down in there, like in the story of Jonah, you're dead. Yeah. Unless you get delivered out of it, right? But then the river, living water that you can drink and bathe in and it's like clean and and, and in the desert areas, it, it, that's life. Yeah. So living water is like God. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus is going to say. Right? He mm-hmm. says, I'm the living water. And bread is like God mm-hmm. because uh, bread provides sustenance. And so uh, all of these symbols that we see around us, all of everything in creation is, is a revelation of God if you have the eyes to see it, right? Mm. And it doesn't mean that you can just go around and, and say like, uh, okay, there's, there's concrete, God's like concrete, right? That, that's not, I don't know about that, right? It depends on what you mean, but the Bible specifically reveals some of this stuff in its symbolic structure. Yeah, so, for sure. So the stars are symbolic of the angels, mm. the divine council, right? The, the, and, and so all, the, all of these things together, when you look at creation, you, you, you can, it's called natural revelation, right? Scripture is specific yeah. revelation, but the world is natural revelation. Yeah. You can know God to some degree mm-hmm. from, from the world because he created it. So it bears his fingerprints. Yeah. Right? It's beautiful. Um, another important symbol that we've looked at is like the, the cardinal directions. Yeah. Right. So specifically eastward movement when they, when they eat the, the apple, or, or the fruit from the tree of life, they're pushed east of the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. When then Cain kills his brother and they're pushed east of Eden. Yeah. So further east. Eventually they end up in Babylon. They build the Tower of Babel. Uh, and that's, you know, Babylon is in Iraq, which is way east of the promised land. So mm-hmm. you kind of see this eastward progression. Mm-hmm. When Lot makes the decision to disconnect himself from Abraham, he moves east towards Sodom. Mm-hmm. When Abraham looks down from the mountain and sees Sodom and Gomorrah uh, as, as you know, uh, smoking salt remains, he's looking east towards yeah. it. Um, and we're going to continue to see that that idea. So, so there's this idea that east is a movement away from God mm-hmm. and west is a movement back towards God. Uh, that doesn't always mean that everything in the east is bad and everything in the west is good. That's not exactly the way that symbolism works, right? It's just kind of, it's, yeah. it's somewhat broad. But so far you see this very consistently, this mm. eastward movement away from God. Um, and so uh, that means that, that those moments where they go east, that those aren't just, that's not just random and it's not just geographical, it's mm. theological. Yeah, for sure. We talked about how when Lot chose to go east, when Abram and Lot, um, when their herders were fighting mm-hmm. and they decided to go separate from each other, Abraham gave Lot the decision on where to go, right? Right. So Lot looks for himself, it says. Yeah. He looks around and he sees that towards the east, towards Sodom, seems mm-hmm. good to him. So mm-hmm. he moves there. How Abraham decides where to go is he asks God, 
which is really interesting. He, yeah. he follows what the Lord says and where the Lord says he should go. So another aspect of that is that it's specifically not where mm-hmm. God commanded them to go. Exactly. And yeah. I think this falls under the category of, of symbolism too, but you know, the, that has to do with vision. Yeah. We've talked about that a lot too. So, you know, when, uh, as soon as, when they eat that, when they eat the fruit, it says that she sees it, she sees that it's good. And so she takes it and mm-hmm. eats it. Right. Well, that's, that's what Lot does. He sees East. He, he lifts up his eyes and he, he sees to the East. He sees that it's good. Right. Because it's, it's fertile soil. And so he takes it. Right. And, and then you're going to see that with David mm-hmm. and that's what Pharaoh did to Sarai. Mm. And then that's what Abimelech did to, to Sarah. And so you, you see this idea is going to be the thing. And that's because to see is to judge. Mm. You see something correctly, you judge it correctly. Remember that the whole conundrum that we're in is whether we're going to see through the knowledge of yeah. God's good and evil yeah. or through our own knowledge of good and evil. And so there's this symbolic aspect of vision. And, uh, you know, like you said, with the eastward movement, sometimes these symbols kind of coalesce together and you see all these things happening at once. When mm-hmm. God says that you're going to be like the stars in the sky, that's really symbolically rich, mm-hmm. what he means by that. And so it's not easy necessarily to piece together. Yeah. But but I think these, thing, these things are real. You think of something like circumcision. We did a whole episode on the the covenant uh, that that is sealed with circumcision. So... It's, it's something that's carved into the male organ of generation because the promise is offspring. Mm, mm-hmm. So the blessing of the promise is symbolized in the cutting off of, of the foreskin because of where that's located. And so the blessing is symbolized in that, but then if you don't do it and you don't follow God in faithfulness, then the curse of the covenant is that you'll be cut off. Mm-hmm. When you circumcise someone, you cut off the skin. So both the blessing and the curse are symbolized in that ritual. Yeah. So so these kinds of symbols are are happening in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about numbers at one point, like the, the numerology and what numbers mean and the importance of the number seven. And we looked at the ages of of the patriarchs mm-hmm. and how old they were and perhaps what some of that might have meant in terms of numerology. Uh, and so all of those things are happening all at once. That's why the symbolic aspect of of our hermeneutic yeah. is important to understand. Yeah, the Bible. absolutely. Yep. I think we've touched on covenants. I think we touched on basically all three covenants that we went through. So I'll jump to the spiritual aspect. We talked a lot about this one, but I feel like that's because this is truly the thing that we are the most desensitized to in mm. our kind of Western modern world, right? Yeah. We just have no sense of of a spiritual realm in our day-to-day lives yeah. as as like Westerners, but that's not how the writers of the Bible felt. Yeah. It's not how the Israelites described their world. So what we talk about and what we reiterate is that there's a very real spiritual component to our lives. And to deny that is to miss out on so much of what the Bible is telling us, right? Yeah. It is impossible to understand what yeah. the Bible is talking about if you have this kind of modernist understanding of the world, right? And of course, like you're not going to believe in the God almighty, if you're truly a materialist, but a lot of times what we try to do to make ourselves a little bit more comfortable is we'll be like, okay, well, I believe in that God, but there's no other quote unquote gods. Mm. There's no other spirits, right? There's no other spiritual beings. We live in a material world. And so maybe there's like a God out there who did something to create this, but this world is material. Yeah. This world is physical. 
And because of our, you know, the the scientific revolution, that that's one of the ways that we tend to focus on this. But that's not the way the Bible talks about the world. Mm-hmm. It talks about the deepest realities of this world being spiritual. And what that means is that in some sense, they're unseen and non-physical. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, when, when, when I say that the Bible is monotheistic, that believes in one God, I mean that in a very specific way. Mm-hmm. I mean that it believes in one God almighty God, mm. but there's all kinds of other spiritual, spiritual beings, beings yeah. right? And the Israelites know that. And so when the Israelites' neighbors start worshiping Molech, that's not a fake God. Yeah. There's a very real fallen, like demonic spiritual that's presence to that, but it's created. It's created, exactly. By God. So the reason it's silly to worship Molech is because he's created by God. Yeah. <laughs> So are you. Yeah. So why would you worship? It would be like worshiping an actual pig. Yeah. Right? Why, why wouldn't you worship a pig? Well, because it's a creation. Yeah. And, 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 so, and so are we. Yeah. Right? And so uh, what we're going to see is, is like, you know, the pagans are worshiping fallen spiritual beings. Yeah. It doesn't get into this a lot in Genesis or in the Bible in general, but we have an understanding that there is some sort of fall in the spiritual realm, mm-hmm. right? So God's not creating these um, these spiritual beings to trick other nations into right. worshiping them, right? They are created to be in the divine counsel of God and worship God, but some of them choose to fall away from that, right? Right. Yeah, like, you know, the, the serpent in the garden, we talked a little bit about the Hebrew yeah. wordplay, but the word... The word there can mean serpent. It can mean, you know, diviner, like magician, you know, mm-hmm. or it can mean shiny. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how gods are shiny, mm. right? Even Jesus is shiny when he transfigures. Uh, and and so um, the that serpent is talking and Eve is not freaked out by that. Right. Well, if a python came up to you and started talking, you'd be freaked out by that, right? Yeah, I'd definitely leave the area and not hear out what he has to say. <laughs> so there's some kind of reality in the garden where the spiritual beings yeah. are in communion with the humans, mm-hmm. right? Because everything is not broken. The veil between heaven and earth has not been put there yet. And there is real union and communion there. Mm-hmm. And so Eve is speaking with the serpent because the serpent's a divine being who... And, and divine beings speak there, right? Yeah. Like, you know, these are the realities that, that we're talking about. And this is what the Bible says about these things, mm-hmm. right? So, so uh, when, again, when we get into idol worship, um, what the Bible believes and, and what I believe is that when th- these people are worshiping idols, they really do believe that there's a spiritual being who's inhabiting that idol mm. and they're participating in ritualistic worship of it. And that is... That is true. Yeah. And so this is this this spiritual warfare, if you will, that we sometimes feel like is we talk about and it's weird. That's a deep reality of the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the divine counsel is going to become key to understanding certain pieces mm-hmm. of the text. And the divine counsel, like we talked about when we talked about Abraham's descendants becoming stars, is very important for us to understand our destiny. Mm. Yeah. We are destined to become divine council members. Yeah. We images of God. And so um, if you say, well, I don't believe in that, then you have to figure out what that means. And why the Bible talks about it so right, much. Right, yeah. right, mm. right. 
So I think that's a good segue into our questions. Mm-hmm. You want to take a couple questions before we end the episode because we, the, the first question is about the divine council. And I, I think it's an interesting question. Why did God create a divine council if he's all powerful and sovereign? I mean, why does he need help making decisions, right? Why not mm-hmm. just make them all on his own? Yeah. Uh, he doesn't need help, mm. right? So I don't say this to be glib, but God cr- God created the divine council because he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this idea, especially, you know, specifically within Christian theology where God is Trinitarian. So he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means the actual being of God, the essence of God is cooperative and reciprocal. Mm-hmm. He's not unitary. Mm. He's Trinitary. So God's essence is cooperative. God's mm-hmm. essence is distributed. God's essence is, 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 is uh, um, uh, participatory because God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. perfect relationship of love. And so if God's going to create a world, what kind of world is he going to create? Mm-hmm. Well, if it has his fingerprints on it, it's going to be a world of cooperation and to some degree multiplicity. Uh, and so, um, if God is like that, then why wouldn't he create like that? Yeah. So he, he participates with his divine counsel because he wants to, mm. he wants his beloved creatures, including those in the, the spiritual realm to participate in this world with him. Mm. And so we're invited to do so. They're invited to do so. He doesn't need them, but he didn't need to create anything at all. Yeah. He doesn't need us. Right. But so, he loves us. So like the Trinity means that nothing else is needed. Mm. And that can feel somewhat maybe offensive at first because we do like to be needed. But I actually think that we don't, it's not really that we desire to be needed. It's that we desire to be desired. Yeah. If, if we felt that God needed us, how immense would that pressure be? Right. Yeah. But to know that God desires us, not needs us, but just desires us us. is comforting. It's gratuitous. Yeah. So we are gratuitous. And the divine counsel is gratuitous. Mm. It's not necessary, but it is deeply desired by God, mm. which is why he created it and why he invites participation in that way. And so that's true of us human, humans, and that's also true of, of, of the, the divine counsel of spiritual beings. Yeah, that's cool. So he's not. it's not like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> let me ask my divine counsel. It is, let me bring my created beings into the very reason for their being and in doing so impart wisdom into them impart wisdom in them and allow them to become fulfilled in what what he created them to be right um it it, you have to begin at that very foundational level of of desire Mm. that god has for for all creatures because nothing is necessary it's all simply wanted yeah by him yeah that's cool okay second question why did God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Why? I mean, why not just keep it out of reach? Yeah. Well, I think because he wants to give it to them. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing a theme in the answers. Yeah. Well, well yes. Yes. I mean, any, you could answer any question of why did God with, because he wanted to. But it's, like, it's like when a parent answers because I said so. Right. And it's like true, but not like, well, you don't want that to be just the answer. You're like, right. Oh. <laughs> and usually the answer to that question from a parent is because I love you. Yeah. And so God wants them to have the knowledge of good and evil. So he's not going to keep it from them. Mm. 
but he wants them to like, you have to understand they are responsible for the world. Sure. Yeah. So he wants them to become what they ought to become voluntarily and in a participatory manner, because that's what it means to be a human. And so if there was no freedom, then we wouldn't be humans, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily saying that God couldn't have created a world where his, his images were not free. Mm. He can do what he wants, but, but he created a world where his images are free because he desires us and he desires us to love him. And if we want to love, then there has to be that choice, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the tree is there and the fruit is not withheld from them, but the, the process of how that fruit, that, that wisdom is going to be imparted is a process of patience, mm. of, of waiting. Which of, we don't like. Of becoming, yeah. right? And so when Abraham becomes the paradigm of faith in the Bible, what specifically is so faithful about Abraham? His patience. He waits. For years. He does the very thing yeah. that the humans in the garden didn't do. When he gets himself in trouble, it's when they don't wait. Mm -hmm. That's the Hagar and Ishmael story, yeah. right? That's the taking of the fruit. Um, and so uh, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Because he wants us to eat from mm -hmm. it. But he does not want us to do it on our own terms because when we do it on our own terms, we destroy ourselves, mm. right? So the reason there's a prohibition on it, first and foremost, is because if you eat it, you'll die. Yeah. And he loves us and he doesn't want us to die. So it's not, it's not necessarily, you know, it is a test in a certain way, mm -hmm. but it's not a gotcha, not a trap, Yeah. right? It's because God wants us to eat from it, but he wants us to eat from it in the way that's going to have us become what we ought to become when we flourish, mm. right? And, and, and so, you know, w what they do is not that God doesn't want them to eat the fruit, but they take it. So now they're in trouble. They, they bypass his plan mm. of the imparting of wisdom and good and evil into their hearts and mm. into their minds. And so they don't become what they're supposed to become. Yeah. And because they're in charge of the world, everything else is a disaster in its mm. wake. Yeah. The next question, um, I had a phone conversation with a friend the other day. She brought this up, like your thoughts on it. Doesn't the story of Hagar and Ishmael seem at least to us, a little bit unfair. Mm. I mean, in the way it ends, I mean, in the way it begins, honestly, mm. it's it's hard to reconcile a story like that. And we'll, we'll cover other stories in the Bible that, I mean, even in the narrative just seems so unfair. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would say no. Mm. I understand the inclination. You know, I understand the, in, the instinct there. But, you know, Hagar and Ishmael are blessed. Yeah, by Isaac right? and through Isaac. So if you want to start to get into like, is it okay that she's a slave and she has to do the surrogacy and everything? Like the answer to that is like, you know, no, that's not mm -hmm. good. <laughs> but remember that God's moving in a compromised world. So mm -hmm. those kinds of things are not always going to be right in the story of the Bible, right? Yeah. Uh, but if the question is just like, you know, what happens to them, is that fair or unfair? I would say that God miraculously rescues them multiple times. Yes. And he yeah. blesses them with the full blessings of the covenant. Mm -hmm. So that's important to understand that, that um, Isaac is the distributor of the covenant, not Ishmael. But Ishmael is a full beneficiary of the covenant. Um, but just like Isaac and his descendants, it, it depends on their faithfulness. Yeah. 
You don't get covenant blessings without covenant faithfulness. So what we're going to see is that the nations that come from Ishmael are going to end up being unfaithful mm. and, and they're going to end up worshiping these other gods, right? And um, kind of the same thing is going to happen to the descendants of, of Isaac, right? Israel, Judah. Um, but because Jesus comes from that line, there's a different end to that story. Yeah. Uh, but, but what I would say is that, you know, uh, one of the reasons I like that we opened actually with the summary of Jonah was because what Jonah tells you, what that story tells you, what that book tells you is that repentance is possible for anybody. Always. Yeah. So, I mean, Jonah knows that so deep in his heart that he doesn't want to go there and preach the gospel. <laughs> yeah. Because he's afraid of how gracious God is and he's correct. Because when the probably the most wicked man in the world, the king of Nineveh, hears that proclamation, he falls on his knees, he goes into the dust, he puts on sackcloth, and he repents. And God blesses him and his people. Mm because repentance is always possible, but outside of repentance, there is judgment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Ishmael and Hagar are blessed partially because they're being faithful to God, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's not their fault that this happened to them. I would say, really, God doesn't want that to happen in the first place. We yeah, talked about yeah, how right. Abram was not supposed to let Sarai tell him to do that. Right. He, he should have said, no, I'm going to wait for the promise. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so, but, you know, what happens to Ishmael and the family in the future is, you know, that's, that's, that's a different question, but um, there is nothing that there's nothing else that we should desire than to be within the covenant of God in communion with him, mm -hmm. receiving yeah. his blessings. Absolutely. And that is the status of Hagar and Ishmael mm -hmm. as, as we left them off. In fact, they experience resurrection. Mm. Yeah. They're in, the dying desert. in the desert and, and God brings them back to life and gives them a well. Right. Yeah. So, so I would say that I would say that if you read it in the context carefully, it, it isn't unfair. It's yeah. actually grace. Speaking of people in mm -hmm. the kind of camp of Abraham, Lot is called righteous in one of Peter's letters, mm. which we won't get to for a bit. Yeah, maybe a couple <laughs> weeks. But you've been talking about him like he's kind of unrighteous. So yeah. how do you kind of hold those two things together? Yeah, it's interesting. You know what what uh, it says in in Peter's letter is that he's saved, yeah. right? So um, the the judgment of God is is somewhat mysterious in in its finality. You know, like I, um, what you can see is that the story of the Bible is specifically the story of God through His people Israel, and so that's what the storyline focuses on. One of the reasons the Melchizedek character is important is because it shows you that God is at work other places. Yeah, God's doing things. It's God. He's not limited to to this story, right? Yeah. Now, this is the story that's going to birth the Messiah who saves the world. And because of that, that's the focus of the narrative thrust mm -hmm. of the story. But but God is out there and he's working and he's moving, right? Mm -hmm. That's all very mysterious to us. When people ask me, what happens to this person who X, Y, Z? They're asking me, is, will they, will, is this person going to go to heaven? And my answer to that question is I refuse to answer that question. Yeah. That is not, that is outside of my pay grade. I have, I do not, I am not in the seat to judge like God judges. Mm -hmm. And so those questions, you know, th those are left to the judgment of God. And I trust the judgment of God. And, you know, I think that I've heard people that are wiser than me say that we're, we're very likely to be surprised 
when we sit at the banquet table at the resurrection in, in multiple ways. Uh, But you know, the mechanisms of how that works and when that happens and what if you never hear the gospel and all those things, like the only thing I'm willing to say to that is I'm, I am willing to say that to whom much is given, much is required. Mm -hmm. So Jackie, you and I know the gospel. Mm -hmm. Much is required of us. Yeah. If someone's never heard the gospel, there's a different judgment that's going to happen. Mm. Doesn't I don't know what that means and how that works. But uh, if to whom much is given, much is required. To whom less is given, less is required, right? Yeah. So um, uh, that prospect, usually people ask the question of like, what happens to the boy in Borneo who's never heard the gospel? They say that because they're being empathetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I appreciate that instinct. But the answer to that question is actually frightening to us. Mm-hmm. Because whatever, however you answer that question determines your own self too, right? So if if you think that the judgment, that certain a level of judgment or whatever shouldn't come upon someone because they haven't received enough, yeah, how much then do that you know? Means if then? you've received it all, then there's much required of you, yeah, right. And so, uh, anyways, that's a little bit on judgment. But to come back to Lot, cool. you know, Lot is connected to the covenant of God, mm-hmm. and God delivers him from Sodom, yeah. So he does have favor with God. Now he ends up in a cave uh, with pretty bad things happening to him and his daughters. Mm -hmm. And they produce basically a bunch of Canaanites. (laughs) Uh, And that's not good, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're totally outside of the covenant. I think what it means is that you don't receive the covenant blessings without the covenant obedience. Mm -hmm. And so Lot is definitely, you know, a step away from Abraham in terms of faithfulness and being friends with God. And so that, that I think manifests itself in the blessings and the curses in his life. Sure. I think that's probably true of all of us, right? If you're, if you're uh, watching pornography, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. It doesn't mean that you're not in the covenant, but it certainly means that there's going to be curses in your life that come from that, that wouldn't, if you were obedient. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. So like I, it's not tit for tat. It's not, uh, uh, you know, recompense, you do a good thing, you get a good blessing, but it is this idea of a life of faithfulness where, you know, um, the, the the if you're putting your eyes on things that are ungodly, then the blessings that come from union with God are going to be diminished. Yeah, it's, it's the idea that God's way is better, right? Not right. just in the end, but now. Right. It's not just about God's way is better. So if you believe in him one day, things will be better for you. I mean, practically speaking, and what Proverbs will get into is if you do God's way of living, Mm -hmm. you will avoid a lot of things that you can create on your own. Certainly there are are problems in our lives that are not caused by us, but a lot of the things that we find ourselves in, it's stuff that we've created for ourselves, right? Yeah, I mean, think about like, if you know somebody who gossips a lot, I guarantee you they have lots of relational strife in their life. Yeah. Now that is partially to me, the judgment of God, because Mm -hmm. that's the way that the world is. It's also somewhat self-fulfilling because if you make it so people don't trust you, there's going to be relational fallout and people, you know what I mean? So it's like, um, yeah, without, I mean, the, the Bible said, you know, James says that that the tongue is a fire. Mm. Well, I see people set fire to their lives all the time with their tongues. Now, that, I think that is the judgment of God, right? But it's it's the judgment of God in the sense of like, we have the covenant. We know what it looks like to be obedient. When we step outside of that, the blessings are diminished and the curses come upon us. I mean, yeah. and it's not, 
necessarily that God's so mad at you, he's inflicting you with relational yeah. strife. Yeah. It's you're not being faithful. And so the consequences of that are coming to fruition. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that Lot dies in a cave with his daughters and they produce, you know, what comes out to be evil nations because they, they're not they're not walking faithfully with God in the same way that Abraham is, mm -hmm. right? They're disconnected from that in a way. Now, he's saved. Mm -hmm. So he's in the covenant, right? So what that means for the afterlife, all that stuff, like I don't exactly know, but those two things can be true simultaneously. Yeah, and you have to, and I think we sure. have to start to see that way. Okay, one last question mm -hmm. before we wrap up. How do we read the same text as other people and come to such different conclusions? Mm -hmm. Like, so we're reading the first book of what Jewish um, literature would call the Torah. Right. And we're reading this stuff drastically differently than they would. I mean, mm. we're seeing Christophanies in this mm. and where they wouldn't. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, some of it with, um, some of it has to do with like uh, presuppositions and assumptions and some of it has, I mean, it, it, it depends on what kind of different conclusions you're talking about. Like I would say that if you deny that Jesus is the Messiah, mm -hmm. then the messianic prophecies that foreshadow the coming of the Messiah are going to look a lot different to you. Yeah. Right. If you deny that there's ever going to be a Messiah, then those verses, those moments, those stories are going to look different. Mm. Right. Because you can read the story that we read about Isaac, not sacrifice, not being sacrificed by Abraham. You can read that story in a way that's not Christological. And in fact, if you don't believe in Christ, then you can't read it Christologically. Right. doesn't mean you can't get other meaning out of it. Right. But, but you're not going to read it that way. So um, as Christians, this is one of the things that's tricky about the way that we read the Bible as Christians, when you take people from the beginning to the end is that you have to read it through the lens of Christ mm -hmm. because that is the locus of all reality for us. Mm -hmm. So you can't pretend like Christ hasn't come and isn't enthroned as the living Lord of the cosmos. Yeah. And if you read the Bible, the Bible says he is the word of God. Right. So you can't read the Bible without reading it through Christ. If you believe what the Bible says, the Bible will say, read it through Christ. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, when, when um, Jonah gets thrown up out of the whale, mm -hmm. uh, we read that as a resurrection picture. He's dead. He's in the depths of the earth. Well, part of the reason we read that as resurrection is because we believe that Jesus was resurrected as maybe the penultimate event of redemptive history. Yeah. And so we see resurrection in Jonah. We see resurrection when Ishmael is saved. We see resurrection when Adam is is put into a sleep and he wakes up and there's new creation in front of him. We see resurrection when uh, Abraham is put into a sleep and he wakes up and the new the new creation reality of covenant is upon him, right? And that's all because we have this reference point of Christ. And so you know you you you're gonna you're gonna read these things differently depending on uh, uh, certainly depending on whether you have an understanding that Christ is Christ mm -hmm. uh, or not, but. Um, you know, uh, some of the smaller, there, there's other interpretive things that are, that you can quibble with. Like there are things I say in this podcast that if someone got, you know, when I'm talking about what trees mean and this story about the Oaks of Mamre being a symbol of the protection of God and the God's covenant. If someone came to me and they were really angry about that and they were like, that is so not true. 
I would probably just be like, okay, it's man. So like tertiary, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I think it's I think that it's not tertiary because I think it's like beautifully descriptive sure. of God. Like God wants us to use our senses to know him and understand him. But if it's like such a big roadblock to you because yeah. of some kind of hermeneutical, you know, uh, structure that you've that you that you insist on or whatever, then like I don't actually think that you have to believe the oaks of Mamre. Uh, represent God to be saved. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's true of a lot of the stuff mm -hmm. that we talk about in this podcast because we're getting into some of the depths of of, of biblical interpretation. Sure, yeah. Um, uh, and so some of those things like don't matter as much to me. My, my seminary professor, uh, a, a theology professor, Gary Bashirs, used to say that there's, uh, there's die for, divide for, and, and debate, debate for. Debate for, yeah. Right? So there are things you'll die for. So the denial of Christ, uh, being Christ, the denial of the resurrection, if that means that my life is taken from me, I die for that, mm, right? Yeah. Uh, there are certain things that make it hard to worship together. So like uh, we are Protestants and we have a different understanding of, of the Lord's Supper than Catholics. Yeah. And because of that difference, it's hard to worship together. Yeah, it's hard to participate in that in ritual. The together if you have such different ideas of what's taking right. place. Infant baptism versus believer baptism, Yeah, right? Uh, those kinds of questions um, are, are divide for because yeah. of the nature of what it means to worship as a community. Now, I don't necessarily know if Catholics feel this way about me, <laughs> but I feel that Catholics are my brothers in Christ. Mm -hmm. So that I, but, but I'm not going to go and participate in their Eucharist. Yeah. Right with them in that way, right. with all those things, and, and, some sure. of the other, and vice versa, right? So, so th that's kind of like in terms of the drastically different conclusions. It it depends on what on what you're talking mm -hmm. about, but certainly in terms of Christ, for any you know other religion like like Judaism, uh, modern day Judaism, or you know something like Islam, they don't believe about Jesus what we do, and so everything is different. Yeah. It's not the same religion that we call different things, right? That's mm -hmm. one of our sort of uh, modernist, like inclusive things that we like to say. Yeah. Sometimes that's not true, right? They, they, if they believe something different about Christ, then they don't have the same faith and they're going to read the Bible drastically differently. Mm -hmm. uh, the story of Jonah means something different to people who don't believe in Christ than it means to us who believe in Christ. Yeah, And that is natural and there's no way around that. And so that may cause discomfort that might not allow this thing to be quite as like modern and inclusive as we want it to be. Mm -hmm. But that is the reality, right? Like we call ourselves Christians, Christians. Yeah. So we, I mean, of course, something like that is going to, you know, draw boundaries. Absolutely. Right. And, and, and how we gatekeep those boundaries is one question. But the, the reality of those boundaries is absolute because to be a Christian is to believe something very specific about Jesus. And that's going to color everything else about the Bible and interpretation and all that. Yeah. So Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, that's all the questions I have for today. Do you have anything else as we wrap up this episode? No, you know, um, in terms of like the story, symbol, spirit aspect, just one thing I think is interesting as we move forward is that all of those things in their own way, they, they progress through the narrative, mm -hmm. right? So the story continues to grow. The symbolism continues to get richer and the spiritual realm continues to get filled out in our understanding of it. Mm -hmm. 
And so the, the reason that we're doing what we're doing in order is because we're trying to paint that picture together. Yeah. Right. So what we think about trees, we think that because we've gone from Genesis one to Genesis six, seven, and eight to the Oaks of Mamre and Abraham, and that stuff is going to continue to, to go forward. Right. And that's true of everything in terms of the story and the symbols and, and the spiritual realm. And so uh, that that is actually the purpose of this podcast is not just to give you a commentary on the individual chapters, but to try to at least in the best way that we can in the format that we're doing it, you know, coalesce those things yeah. and, and bring those things together and string those things throughout. Yeah. And show that they are already connected. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's all I've got for today. All right. Host Jackie. You know, do you want me to do the outro? Yeah, of course. I, I forget how you say it. All right. Well, um, if that's it for everybody, (laughs) I forget how you say it. (laughs) Uh, We will see you next time on Story Symbol Spirit.